James. Danke. How are you this week? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Well, when I was younger in, in primary school, I had a recurring nightmare. And primary school was like, uh, you know, when you're, like, I don't know, a single digit human for those in America. Um, I had a recurring nightmare that I would be at school and then I would realize that I actually wasn't wearing pants. And so I'd gotten like halfway through the day. And then all of a sudden I was like, what? I've got no pants on. Nobody told me about this. Everyone's been being mean to me. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that I exercise before work most days. And then I exercise near work. And then after work, I have a shower and I get changed. And I forgot to bring pants today. <laughs> and this is the first time I've ever done this. And so I'm rolling around in a sweaty pair of exercise shorts. Um, and I've only got one sort of meeting with external people today. And I'm just going to be, it's in the afternoons after this. Um, basically, hopefully they'll find it funny that I'm basically wearing exercise shorts. <laughs> so I've got like business up top and then exercise shorts and runners at the bottom. Uh, well, I'm sure it's all in the confidence, Duncan. As long as uh, you, you, you go in there, um, they won't think twice about it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, hopefully. It's funny um, how whether some people would see that dream as self-perpetuating or <laughs> um, some kind of prophetic ability for it to warn you about what's going to happen in the future. Mm, well, it's the first time it's happened. Hopefully it's the last. <laughs> so James and I thought we'd start a new segment called Word of the Week. Um, and my Word of the Week is confuddle. Um, now, so I'll just say it again, confuddle. Now, um, I don't know how to describe my befuddlement around that word, Duncan, so maybe you can explain it to me. Yeah, so confuddle kind of means the same as confuse. And one of the things that I have, like, over the last couple of years is it's gotten more and more into the beauty of language. Like, a really well-constructed sentence with nice words gives me joy. And so I kind of try to find words that are sort of fun words. So for me... Confuddle is a much better word than confuse. It's more fun. It's happier word. And so I'll find things like this and then I'll be using them. So yeah, no more confuse, confuddle. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a, that's a very cool new word. So Duncan, I've got something that I think might just confuddle you. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not exactly a word, um, but it's something that uh, seeks to highlight uh, the ability for the English language to have lexical ambiguity. So tell me if you think this is a real sentence. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. No, I don't think it's a sentence. So what I did was I literally just said buffalo, the word buffalo, eight times. And believe it or not, that is actually grammatically correct if you use the three different um, uh, premises of the word. One being the place, in a city called Buffalo in New York. The verb, which is the lesser known meaning of to bully or harass. And the noun, who refers to the animal or the bison, buffalo. And when you put those three together, you can say, um, so it's basically talking about buffaloes who are from Buffalo, who buffalo, which is to say intimidate each other, are intimidated by buffaloes from Buffalo that intimidate so, <laughs> so it just seeks to uh it just goes to show that the english language um not only has words that are quite uh befuzzling but uh entire grammatical sentences as well yep um also uh, i'm not the greatest at grammar so i'm very sorry for what you're about to listen to <laughs> oh well apparently there's a there's an entire lexicon of dunklish out there you know it's not good um all right 
What are we speaking about today? Um, we're speaking about a book called Insight by Tasha Urich. I've probably just mispronounced her surname, so <laughs> sorry. Um, what? Who is she? She's a PhD in organizational psychology. She's also a New York Times bestseller. Um, the first book, um, not this one, uh, was a New York Times bestseller, and this one, Insight. And she's also done work as a consultant with companies like T-Mobile, KPMG, Walmart, and many more. So a pretty accomplished human. Um I think I brought this up a couple of podcasts ago. My favorite quote is, 95% of people think that they are self-aware, but studies show that 10 to 15% of people actually are. Mm. So you think you know who you are, and I sort of talk about like your internal awareness and external awareness, but the truth is that according to studies, you probably don't. Um, and one of the key things they do in this book is they kind of go through ways to hopefully become more aware. And the very first thing they do is to talk about your values. So they say, understanding our values, that is the principles that guide how we want to live our lives, is the first pillar of insight. Values help us define the person we want to be, as well as set the stage of the other six pillars. And what they do is they have six questions, which are meant to help you understand your values. And we thought we'd go through them today, and we would answer them with our thoughts. I'll just quickly read them to you, and then we can get into it. So, so number one is, what values were you raised with? Does your current belief system reflect those values or do you see the world differently than you, when you were brought up? Number two, what were the most important events or experiences of your childhood and young adulthood? How did they shape your view of the world? Number three, at work and in life, whom do you respect the most and what do you respect about them? Number four, who do you respect the least and what makes you feel this way? Number five, who is the best and worst boss you ever had and what did he or she um, earn, do, to do to earn that monkeyer? And six, when it comes to raising a family or mentoring others, what behaviours would you most and least want to instill? All right, James, let's get off on the first one. Do you want to start? So the first question again is, what values are you or were you raised with? Does your current belief system reflect those or do you see the world differently than when you were brought up to see it? Okay, but before we start, I just have to get this up on the board because I think um, I'm uh, ahead by a, a moonshot, but... Duncan, I believe you just pronounced monkeyer, not mon yeah, okay. not Monica. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, uh, yes. There we go. One on yes. the board for me. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so Great one. I was trying not to laugh the whole time. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> Good one. Okay. You did well. Okay, so let's go back to the, um, to the first question. So values that you were raised with. Um, yeah. Uh, which is an, it's an interesting uh, insight because... Um, if you're like me, um, I had two parents who were um, themselves raised on two very divergent set of values. Um, and if I were to kind of put them on a spectrum, uh, my dad would have been a lot more um, rule-based, like there is a set of principles that you need to abide by in life in order to be, um, you know, uh, just in, as, as, a, uh, as a requirement. Whereas mum was a lot more liberal in the sense that she would allow us to make, or you know, she would give us the freedom to make our own choices, um, and by virtue, I guess, um, and in theory, make our own mistakes. So, um, one of the things that uh, my dad would always instill in my brother and I was um, this idea around that, you know, 
a lot has been given to us in our lives. And so I guess this is probably a way to instill humility. Uh, um, but then it is incumbent upon us to then earn what we have been given. So he used to have a saying that he would say a lot, which was, when much is given, much is expected. <laughs> and um, like, I don't know if I still fully agree with that. Um, you know, like Duncan and I talked about the notion of love last week. Um, and one could, um, you know, one definition of love I have read um, on numerous occasions in that it is unconditional. And <laughs> when much is given, much is expected could be construed as conditional. But um, mm. having said that, I do kind of understand where he's getting at because as a parent, as a new parent myself, like, I can see what my partner and I are doing by giving so much of our life to our children. And we want them to get the most out of their lives. But um, so the other thing about my dad is that I think his message and his messaging is <laughs> um, out of alignment. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see what he's trying to get at, which is that as parents, we give our children everything that we can. And we do that because we then want them to make the most out of their lives. Um, so that is a central value that's stuck with me for a long time. Um, how about you, Duncan? Yeah, I mean, so perhaps the first thing is that I don't think that there were many explicitly stated values from my parents. Mm. Um, it, it was more implicit. But one of them was that you needed to look after yourself. So perhaps I don't know, as much as given, much as expected. Um, it was made very, very clear that there wasn't going to be a sort of, you know, handouts. <laughs> I was going to have to make my own way and look at these things. And I remember one of the things that mum said to us multiple times growing up um, was that we need to lift ourselves into the top 10% of society. Nothing. And I remember pretty thinking, explicit. holy hell, <laughs> it's going to be pretty freaking hard. Um, and so, I don't know, it was just like a... Like a do not rely upon anybody else, and maybe this isn't. It took much is given, much is expected, so different. But it was sort of like, you know, you need to basically look after yourself yeah. and not rely upon anyone, and not expect handouts from anybody or the government or all the fa you know family. Yeah. Um, and I think that was pretty good because you know, um, my my dad was is, and is you know financially successful. Um, but you know, there was no sense of entitlement. I believe that our parents mm. gave us. Mm. Mm. Um, what about unexpected areas? So uh, to give you an example, I would uh, probably tout, tout, toot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it should just be James and, should we rename this? James and Duncan mispronouncing words. Do we should, I think we should get all of the wrong ones and just continue to do them. I believe it's tout, tout. but we should just say toot from now on. <laughs> I would toot. <laughs> <laughs> oh god um, yeah, and I had it right and I just had to blow it anyway I, yeah. I would count uh, my third um, parent as comic books so I was an, um, a, a fervent reader of comic books when I was growing up and um, at face value you know they were about superheroes about you know great battles and adversity and all of these different kind of things but um, without even realising it you are in, absorbing a whole host of values from these comic books um, that actually do have, uh, you know, utility later on in life. I mean, just the obvious ones that come to mind is Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, other notions that, you know, there's you know, no challenge is too great um, for you to be able to overcome. 
doing what is being brave means doing what is right even when you're afraid so Duncan did you have anything outside of maybe your immediate family that fed into your values yeah, there's this wonderful book called The Genealogy of Morality by Nietzsche that I haven't read. Isn't it, <laughs> um, isn't it Nietzsche? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I, I'm not German. Um, anyways, I've read sort of summaries of the book. <laughs> um, and it basically tracks the morality of the time, mm. of the day, during time. And it's changed. Like, it fundamentally moves across time. And one of the things that people say is, like, do you actually actively choose your values or morals, or do you just inherit what it is society at the time? There's a great quote from Tim Urban, which is, what often feels like independent reasoning when zoomed out is actually playing connect the dots on a pre-printed set of steps laid out by somebody else. What we feel, uh, what feels like personal principles might just be general tenets of your tribe. What feel like original opinions may be actually those spoon-fed to us by the media or our parents or friends or our religion or a celebrity. And I think what you're saying is that you got some of your values from comic books. And I think this is true. Like, you know, I think my parents did say some things explicitly, but by and large, it was much more implicit. Mm. And that these things, they sort of didn't necessarily actively take. So I think you've you decided like, yes, I don't know, marriage is a good idea. And of course, you should send your kids to school. Um, and, you know, whatever else it is. Um, but I don't know if they necessarily, you know, actively pick some of these things. And so for me, I think everything, it, it sort of defines you and society. And you don't realize how much you are taking on these things, whether it's through comic books, whether it's through what your friends do at school, whether it's anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was something that you and I unwittingly touched on a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the difference between nature and nurture. And how um, very early on in your life and much of, let's say, your childhood, what, um, you know, what is in this instant being nurtured um, has a huge impact, I think, at least, on what determines your value set. Uh, and uh, in my personal experience, it, only, it was only really when I was about 21, 22 onwards, where um, this other, um, let's say, uh, my own agency, started to kind of kick in where it would actually question these values. And I, and I wouldn't mm. say that I would go consciously deep and dis deconstruct every single one that I held, but I would at least, um, anything that came into my um, conscious awareness, I would at least then um, challenge, you know, what is the foundation for this belief or what is the foundation for this value? Um, you know, I, like I, I have absolutely no... Um, conflict of mind to say that when I was in my early to later teenage years, I was a bit of a b believer in things like a Christian God, because I thought, you know, everything was just so amazing that there had to be mm. something at play here. But then um, when I got, you know, into my 20s, I started to question these um, beliefs and I thought I broke down and I tried to explore where did these ideas come from? Where, you know, why have they been, um, you know, implanted in my mind seemingly, seamlessly? <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very, very um, confronting, I would say, for anyone to think about how much of this is nurture and how much of this is your own agency when it comes to your own values. I completely agree. Like One of the biggest ones that I think was, you know, is I just assumed I would have kids. I grew up and, you know, of course, we're going to have kids one day. Um, and it wasn't until I started reading philosophy, which really only sort of happened three years ago, then I started to sort of 
realized that I had taken some things on, you know, faith without really deciding whether or not I thought they were good for me. Um, and I've come to believe that I don't know if I want kids. Um, whereas before it was a certainty, of course I want kids. Whereas now I'm kind of like, maybe, you know, I, I think I could live a perfectly good life without having them, but I'm not like diametrically opposed to them either. Um, and so this is just one where I realized that I didn't actually make a conscious decision about it. I'd just taken it as a given. And I know that I think my mother would, would want me to have children as an example. Um, and I don't know if she necessarily has actively chosen this or it's just so ingrained in society that this is, you know, the way she feels or thinks things should be. Yeah. So um, I, I completely empathize with that for, uh, for me as well. It wasn't so much children, but like, um, from a very early age, I was, and as we talked about this before, I was a hopeless romantic. I believed in the idea of one true love. I believed that, um, you know, there was a lifelong partner waiting for me out there. Um, and that was kind of what, um, I guess I would frame all of my ideas around what my future would be like. It would be with this perfect idea of a, um, of a partner or this person. It would be um, building a family around this person. It would be all of these different kinds of things. I never thought of my career. I never thought of my life, um, you know, filled with, you know, adventures outside of it being framed around, um, you know, having a romantic life partner. And the irony of this was, is that it was only when I finally came to the realization in myself that I was myself self-sufficient. I didn't need the idea of a romantic or a life partner or a lover to complete me or that ideal state of me. Uh, and it was only when I um, fully came to terms with actually wanting to be on my own for at least um, a short while to enjoy this new state of mind. Did I happen to run into my now wife at the, and fall in love straight away? So it was kind of ironic in that sense. Hmm. Um, I think one other point, sort of just going back to the question, any ways you see the world differently than how you were brought up? Um, so I was sort of told, you know, find a job that you can do and then do a really good job. And if you do that, you'll always have a job. Um, and on the very first day of my very first job, uh, the big boss said, if you make yourself irreplaceable, you'll never get promoted. Mm. And I'd always been brought up to kind of see the opposite. Make sure that you are irreplaceable. <laughs> and I was like, holy crap. This is like, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the examples of this was, um, I was I'm now co-founder of an education startup. Um, and I was thinking about, I was working at Google at the time, quitting that job to go and have no income. And, you know, to just, you know, try and do things. And I remember asking mum, and mum told me that I was silly and that people would kill for my job and that going and doing this thing where I had no income was not a good idea. Mm. Uh, and since then, I think it's been a very good idea in hindsight. But I think part of this was, you know, make sure that you've got a, you're a place where you do something that's really needed and play it safe. Um, and maybe this is just mothers of the world always wanting the best for their children and sort of maybe being a little more risk averse <laughs> than other people. Um, but I, I've sort of fundamentally changed my view on this. Mm. I think the biggest risk is taking no risk. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, yeah I think that you know, the job is not to sort of, I don't know, make sure you have a steady stream of money. Now, no money will make you sad, but lots of money won't make you happy. You know, I think a job hopefully can not just give you money, mm. but can also give you a sense of meaning and purpose in the world. Yep. Now, I know this isn't the case for everyone, but I do think it is possible. And I think it's more possible than it's ever been with 
that, I don't know, increased, you know, productivity, meaning that we don't have to have people that are doing, you know, you know, farming by hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just touching on that, I, as a parent myself, I can completely um, relate to your mother in the sense that, um, you know, anything you can do to lower risk for your ch- children to fail gives you immediate comfort. But uh, it is counterintuitive. Like the more your child is willing to put themselves out there um, and potentially fail, um, you know, they might not succeed. But in a way, that is kind of the building blocks for success in life, being able to fail, pick yourself up and move forward. I just wanted to say that quickly. But the other thing you said, Duncan, that was really interesting was this notion of you having a value set, um, which was make yourself irreplaceable, that was then complete, that was quickly contradicted or um, contravened, which was your boss telling you don't make yourself irreplaceable. Um, And that made me think of one uh, particular value that I was... um, given from a very early day that I can remember actually really messed with me. Um, not, not in a significant way, but it, uh, just to give you the story, uh, whenever one of my aunties would, would look after my brother and I and our cousin, um, she would do this thing that whenever we asked for something, she would tell us, if you have to ask, you won't receive. Now, okay. now I, can, um, I can give you the end of the story, which was she simply said that, that we would stop asking for things. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, my brain couldn't reconcile that. I tried to find meaning behind these words. Uh, and what I came up with is that you have to go out and do things yourself. Um, so it was it, it was interesting. I don't know if you, Duncan, have any other kind of values that whether or not it was something that you derived yourself or it was actually a misleading value that you like, you know, this kind of other one of, you know, you grew up thinking, of course I'll have kids. And now you have questioned it. And now you're thinking, well, hold on, that's not necessarily a given anymore. Um, but were there any values that were completely of the negative um, variety? I remember, so I was reading this book and the first thing I was like, is like, you know, James, do you think you're a valued, you know, you have a, a good values? Do I think I have good values? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, I remember. I think most people probably think they would, and then I was like, "Okay, what are your values?" And I was like, "I can't name them." <laughs> and I'm like, "How can you think you are someone of good values if you cannot name your values?" Mm. And then I was like, uh, um, "Be good to other people, um, <laughs> uh, you know, work hard or something." And I was like, "My God, this is like the most generic stuff ever." <laughs> and and so I sort of realized that I don't think. You know, they say companies have a value statement and some of them, you know, Enron had some values written down, didn't necessarily follow them too well. Um, but I, I honestly sort of hadn't, when I think growing up, you know, consciously thought about what my values were and consciously thought about what other people's values were. And I think this is sort of an interesting point. Like there are some people that perhaps you don't like so much, right? Do they have bad values? And this is sort of one thing I was going to get into a bit mm. later. Like, mm. you know, do, do you think that... Yeah, if I'm thinking about people who I don't necessarily like, I don't think they necessarily have bad values. No. Like I think they would say that they're a valued, you know, they are a value driven person and they have good morals and that, that what they have done is justified. Mm. And so it's this weird thing. Like what are values? I mean, do, people, I don't think people have actively chosen or written down what their values are as a general rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, no, I completely agree. So um, one of the sayings that I've, um, I found very useful uh, in understanding other people's motivations is, Everyone is the hero of their own story. 
<laughs> uh, and if you think about it, on the in, the inverse sounds absurd. Like, who thinks that they're the bad guy in in their own story? Uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so when you um, use that framework or put any person who you are particularly um, jarring with in that light and you think to yourself, this person sees themselves as the good guy here. Um, and if we're in direct conflict and they see me as the bad guy, and that kind of puts the shoe on the other foot in the sense of like, so what is it about myself that is um, antagonizing to this person? Uh, and, the, mm. and the other idea around this is... Um, Again, these are not my thoughts, but I resonate with them, is that the essence to all conflict is misunderstanding. Now, that's, mm, not, that's mm. not to say that, you know... they're not all. That's a very strong word. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the, it was the essence to conflict. And, it, you know, there are definitely conflicts where you can understand the other person's point of view perfectly well and still disagree and conflict with them. Um, but I think it was a more philosophical level where you can go to the true nature of, um, you know, someone's value uh, and if you understand that then you can potentially coexist so like yeah i think it's a very uh very powerful tool to be able to see someone else as the hero of their own story when you are uh, yourself um you know in a state of conflict with them yeah um one of the quotes which is similar james said miscommunication is the mother of all unhappiness um so it wasn't that someone was actively trying to annoy you mm. or they had malicious intent it's just that somehow unintentionally things got, uh, you know, into a bad place. And so this is actually jumping to question four. It's like, who do you respect the least and what makes you feel this way? One of the things that I'm putting down here is that people that don't take the time to try to look at the world from other people's circumstances and to see why what that person is doing may be related to those circumstances. Mm. So... I think there are some people who are outright malicious, but they are far and few between. Uh, in my opinion, in a country like Australia, when we have good economic conditions, if you're like, I don't know, in Syria and it's kill or be killed because there's only, you know, a, a suboptimal amount of food, then yeah, <laughs> it's a bit different. <clears throat> um, but I have found, and this is even for myself, like I don't think in the past that I took anywhere near as much time as I should have to try to put myself in someone else's shoes and to understand where they're coming from mm. and then once you do that you can almost always see ah well that's kind of justifiable like you know someone's having a really rough period right and then this means that they're not as reliable as they normally were but all you see is them being a bit less reliable and then you get pissed off <laughs> <laughs> and then you know your annoyedness makes them annoyed or even more unhappy and it becomes a negative feedback loop so one of the things is like always try before you get annoyed to understand what someone else has done and why. Mm. And I think this is like a, a key to hopefully living a more happy life for you because otherwise you just get annoyed way more often than you should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really, um, I, I really like it, the saying that the space between um, receiving information and your reaction to that, um, that gray space um, is your ability to empathize or your ability to control your own thoughts. And so um, to use your example, Duncan, when someone's doing something that annoys you, um, I would say the typical response would just get annoyed, like allow that instinctive reaction to occur. But what you're talking about doing is to get in front of that reaction. Think of think first about, okay, what is this person's um, you know, objective or agenda? 
and how can I see it in their way to, to help me understand their point of view? Uh, and I think that's a very powerful tool. Um, one of the things that I least respect or that I wrote down um, when thinking about these questions is, uh, in a way, people who have no compassion or empathy. Uh, but also similar to that is um, anyone who tries to take power away from another human being. So whether you're a founding father or <laughs> someone um, you know, with uh, similar uh, philosophy, where everyone is born with inalienable rights, um, which is what the founding fathers would argue. Uh, and some of those inalienable rights might be you know, the right to exist, the right to not um, live in fear of persecution based on your beliefs or your own values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there are definitely um, a small group of people in the world who will judge you based on your character, judge you based on, you know, in, in a very, very um, harsh way, and then will actually actively try and take, you know, your, uh, I guess, your own power away because um, putting your empathy hat on, that is seen as a threat to them. But that is something I have very little, uh, I guess, tolerance for. Hmm. Um, maybe we should, should we jump down in it or should we maybe move to the, oh, let's, let's do it. Hey, <laughs> go with <laughs> it. respect the least, um, and why. And I thought the very first thing, um, is a quote that James said ages ago, if you can't handle me on my worst day, you don't deserve me on my best Marilyn Monroe. So the first thing I wanted to say is that like, honestly, me at my worst is not the greatest human <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and for better or worse, I don't think you're always the same to all people. Um, so as an example, um, I think I am sometimes the worst Duncan around my mother. And she has a heart of gold. She is one of the most selfless people I know. And she's always been good to me. Yet I can become very frustrated with her very easily. Something I'm not proud of. Yeah. Um, and it's something I'm trying to change. Yeah, kudos and to so, your mother for putting up with you. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so I'm just, I'm just so un, unimpressed with myself at certain times. Mm. And so I suppose one of the key things I was sort of going to write out here is like people who are being unreasonable. <laughs> um, and this is sort of linking into that empathy, compassion thing. You need to basically assume hopefully that others have good intentions. And if they don't, then that's a different conversation. But just being unreasonable um, is one of the key things. And I find that unfortunately, I can be unreasonable <laughs> um, at times. Um, and at other times, I think that I'm reasonable to a fault, you mm. know, which is like, you know, ruinously empathetic. And so, I don't know. Um, yeah, one of the people I actually don't respect sometimes is myself. Mm. And it sucks because, you know, I don't want to be with this person sometimes. That, that's a very insightful, uh, um, you know, way to look at it, Duncan. I think um, it's, it's really, really, you know, goes to your character to be able to put yourself uh, in a light objectively to say, you know, sometimes my behavior in this way is not becoming of me. Um, and I think, you know, we all do it, but I don't think to your point, we all reflect on that. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways in which, um, you know, people arrive at that notion. So I know myself, uh, and so this, this is where I talk about, um, emotional intelligence versus emotional fitness. I do not profess to have high emotional intelligence, but I do believe that I have less emotional fitness than my emotional intelligence. So just to clarify, emotional fitness 
So emotional intelligence is your ability to understand um, and to act on the emotional um, standings of people around you, including your own. Emotional fitness is how you respond to that in the moment. So, for example, when, say, Duncan, your mum was, um, you know, talking to you and your immediate, uh, I guess, instinctive reaction is to get annoyed, your emotional fitness would be for your mind to block that instinctive reaction and tell yourself, you know, she's trying to do something here that she thinks is, um, you know, in both your best interest, and then to listen to that. My emotional fitness is very poor sometimes. <laughs> um, and th to me, that's something I definitely see as... Um, so this, what I'm trying to get at is that this is a, uh, a quality that I respect very little in others. But it's also something I'm seeing more of in myself. That when I do get triggered, I don't have the emotional fitness to be able to get myself through that particular moment. Um. I think there are, there are many definitions of things. Um, so one part, one model for emotional intelligence is like self-awareness. Another part is self-regulation, social skill, empathy, motivation. Mm. I think maybe your definition of emotional fitness is self-regulation. You've seen something happen and you, you can't necessarily respond in the way you would like to. Mm. Is that fair or am I misunderstanding? I, I'm saying that's fair. Um, I think, um, yeah, you're, you're right. It's quite a broad spectrum. If I could... Um, I guess, draw a line between the two. One is your ability to understand or intellectualize. The other is how you actually act on it in the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about like people you don't respect and then also had sort of, um, <laughs> you know, your boss, I think your worst boss or whatever. Um, so <laughs> one of the key things was like emotional regulation or emotional volatility is mm. kind of the two sides of the same coin. Yep. So I think my best boss was actually my worst boss. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's how you can be happy, sad. You know, the happiest people are also the saddest people. And this person was incredibly intelligent um, and was generous with their time and helped me learn a lot of things, but was also, in my opinion, very emotionally volatile and unnecessarily so. Um, and it made me scared to be around them sometimes because I was just like, mm. I don't know what's going to happen yep. here. Yep. And so one of the things that I didn't recognize is that, I don't know, teenager Duncan was pretty emotionally volatile <laughs> and, and may have responded in some ways that he, in hindsight, thinks were not great. Um, and I think that uh, they say life doesn't get easier, you get better at it. I like to think that I've slowly become more aware about myself and part of that is seeing what's happening. So they say, I'm feeling frustration. I don't therefore become frustrated. Mm. And that when I feel frustration, then I have the regulation and control to, to be like, okay, what's the best way to respond here? Am I going to amplify this or am I going to be neutral? Or am I going to dampen this? And so one of the things we should talk about people you'd respect the least is like people who have unnecessary emotional volatility. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I completely, it, it's like the word volatility, I think um, has really hit home for me what I was struggling to um, describe myself. So very similar to you, to your circumstances, Duncan, my worst boss that I can um, you know, easily draw to from many years ago was someone who had this very warm, very, very inviting, very um, congenial and supportive um, element to him. And that was kind of what I was exposed to for much of the first um, phase of working with him. But over time, um, he also revealed 
this very, very volatile nature where out of nowhere he can suddenly be quite aggressive, he can be very demanding, he can be very um, accusationary, he can be very, um, you know, quite quite choice in his use of words. Uh, And that was, to me, what really made someone like him so hard to work for because it was this complete and utter uncertainty and fear that you did not know who you were getting that day or even in that meeting or in that moment um, that made it so unsettling. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely a very um, big part of it. What I also think um, is pertinent to what we're talking about here, which is, um, you know, your own ability to, um, or, your, you know, your own level of self-awareness is how you behave in a certain way without even being aware of it. And I can give you a really good example because at that same job, um, I was very young, James, like early twenties. Um, but I would, I would have back then described myself as um, meek or as someone who was just really willing to do a good job and to learn, um, and not, you know, step on toes or um, get my um, seat at the table or anything like that. However, um, it came back to me from numerous sources that I was perceived as arrogant and aggressive. So even though I had this image of myself, even though I had this idea that I was, you know, only trying to um, learn from others and only trying to um, be subservient in my dealings with, let's say, more senior um, professionals, they saw me in a completely different light. And that was, to me, a very big lesson in, you know, what we could probably consider to be, you know, your own, your level of insight into yourself. Um, and it was, a, it was a big turning point for me because I had a choice. I could have said, well, you know, nuts to this. I know who I am. I know I'm not this person you think I am and go in a different direction. Or I could say, right, how did I get here and what can I do to turn this around? Uh, And it was a very valuable lesson because I was able to take that um, with me going forward. Cool. Um, I think this is, you know, part of what what the quote that we started off with. Um, 95% of people think they're self-aware, but 10 to 15% of people actually are. (laughs) And I think James just brought up one of the points where he sort of had a realisation that how he saw himself in his head was different to how other people saw him. Um, talking about one of the points that I think is good is that I think we're talking about self-regulation of emotions, but what this means is not that you just want to have one emotion the entire time. It, it means, I think that you want to be able to feel all emotions, but to feel them in a healthy way. Mm. So this doesn't mean that you don't feel sad and, you know, you, you only ever feel happy or you don't, you don't, you don't ever feel sort of the extremes. Um, and so one of the things that I sort of find and certain people I really respect is that they can understand their emotions, i.e. self-perception, and that they can then live them, i.e. be in that emotion and to talk about it in a healthy way. So, for instance, if you've lost someone, you shouldn't just cordon off the grieving and not have it occur. You should take time to grieve and do it in a way that helps you recognize what was special about that person and, and why you should allocate your time to different things in the future. So for me... Um, it's sort of like, I think regulation is good, but that doesn't mean that you only ever feel one emotion. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think 
this kind of touches on the the the, the wider positive mindset movement and how I guess to your point, Duncan, people are trying to talk about you know just be positive, just put your mind in a constructive positive mindset, and everything will be okay. Um, whereas um, to your point, and I agree, it's not about just trying to achieve a positive mindset. It's about having a very healthy relationship with the full spectrum of feelings that you go through and being very honest with yourself and how you're feeling in the particular moment and allowing that feeling to, you know, to flow through you. Um, you know, there, there have been moments, um, you know, in <laughs> my last three years of parenting that have taken me to, um, you know, the depth of my own, uh, I guess, um, uh, levels of perseverance <laughs> and it was important to me to be able to stop and say not just like oh, I'm just going to keep going everything's fine but to actually say you know what I'm burnt out I'm worn out um, and to be able to be honest with myself in that moment um, so you know, I, I completely agree like a full healthy awareness of the full spectrum of emotion I think is a much more um, balanced approach to having, um, you know, this self-awareness. Cool. Um, one of the things I think maybe we'll go on to the next question. Um, at work and in life, who do you respect the most and what do you respect about them? Um, and I thought I'd start with my mother. <laughs> um, and, and the key thing here is tenacity. Um, she, you know, is a terrier. Um, she's not going to be told that you know she's not gonna be able to do something she just she just works hard at things i think this is like growth mindset and will you know be be confident in her ability to get something done you know no matter the odds or whatever else it is and so i think this is something that i sort of saw from her is like you've got to have belief in yourself um and she's just the, one of the most you know tenacious people i know mm. and i don't think that that's necessarily um, built into people. I think some people say, you know, you're good at some things, you're bad at some things and, you know, try to make sure that you save face and don't let people, you know, see you try to do things that you could fail at. And, and, and that was kind of the opposite of my mother. And so I thought I'd sort of, you know, hit that as one of the things which I respect a lot. Mm. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, without hesitation, the person I respect the most is my partner. Um, I would say she to um, like personally she's the embodiment of grit <laughs> she will commit herself to um, whatever her goals are to whatever it is that she holds in her own esteem or value uh, and will set about achieving that um, even if it's to her own um, detriment uh, and that's something that I see very rarely in people. That's something that I look to as a point of aspiration. Like if I ever think like, oh man, I had a pretty unproductive day. <laughs> I just think about what she has gone through and how much she has worked and how hard she has worked uh, and how that's something that I just completely admire. Um, other, other traits include things like, um, you know, her honesty, like she, she, is incapable of lying. <laughs> uh, it's like it's like baked into her source code, um, and I think that's it's incredibly admirable. Um, you know, she's a lot smarter than I am, so it's not like naivety or um, obliviousness, which I would probably um, uh, list under my own qualities. <laughs> but it's something that I see as having a huge amount of integrity. So um, yeah, it's easy for me to see who I admire. That's wonderful. You get to spend a lot of time with her. Um, look, another one, which I think is sort of an unrelated one, uh, un underrated one, 
is with dad. Um, so he, and this is reliability. And I'm sure that, you know, you know, he might be slightly relative, but like, it's just the best thing. Like when, when someone says they'll do something, they do it. Mm. And you don't have to follow it up. You just implicitly trust, you know, they're going to be at this place on, on this time. They'll be there. And it seems to be in short, you know, shortage in my opinion. And so just there's people that you can rely upon and that they get, they do what they say and they say what they do. And this is just a beautiful thing, which I think a lot of people should do more. So reliability is another one that I really like. Do you have any more that you really like, James? Well, I can certainly say I fall in the, the camp of not being reliable in that sense. So um, I, I definitely think that that's a, an important um, trade that we should have more of. Um, you know, in terms of other people that I admire, I would go beyond my own, um, you know, my own circle uh, and look at people, you know, in the, you know, in the industry, in work, in in commerce, and what it is about them that I think, are, you know, truly valuable, um, you know, characteristics to hold. Um, and you know, and I talk a lot about you know, people like Charlie Munger uh, and how he talks about you know, just consistent application of learning and trying not to do stupid things. Like simple um, mantras like that, I find incredibly empowering because one, they're simple and two, they're very, very easy to grasp. Um, and then you can see him living by those values. Um, someone else I admire who is by far not without fault, but I still admire is Steve Jobs. Um, so some would even go as far to argue that he was a very flawed human being. But why I admire him so much was that... You all. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. But why I admire him so much was that he was very clear on his vision from the beginning and he was able to bring that vision or manifest that vision in a very powerful and compelling way. Whether you would call that the Steve Distortion Field or otherwise, for someone reality distortion field yeah um for someone to be able to do that in such a um methodical and tangible way i find incredibly um uh, admirable i'll just put one more out there um this is from jeremy cox who's one of my co-founders at the education startup um he has a raw ability like raw common sense like a lot of people you know don't even see that there's something that's not right and then if you tell them, so we have this sort of framework, problem, solution, how, execution. So you give them a space and they cannot see that there's a problem there. Mm. Most people can't. Then the next level is you give them the problem and you go, what's the solution? And they cannot give you the solution. Mm. And so I think that this is, you know, a lot of things that the world needs. Now, some of them are super difficult, like, I don't know, curing cancer. <laughs> um, but in some places, the, the, the solution to some people is just obvious. And I call this like raw common sensibility. Um, and, and others just cannot see it for love nor money. Um, so I think that's something which I sort of really respect, um, is that, um, cool. So maybe would you want to, oh, James, what would you like to talk about? All right. So what questions haven't we touched on yet? Uh, we've done the boss, uh, and we haven't done all about the boss. We can do more if you want. I, I'm good <laughs> with that. Part. Um, like I think do you know that when it comes to raising a family or mentoring others, what behaviors would you most and least want to instill? Hey, that sounds like right up my alley. All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right, so um, raising a family, what behaviors 
what behaviors do you want? Okay, so that's interesting. I, I, I was thinking um, values, but I think behaviors is better because you can actually tie it to something tangible. Um, so the first behavior I would probably want is someone who is very much uh, conscientious in their dealing with others. So this might be empathy to, to make it more simple. Uh, someone who can see and understand the other person in their when they're interacting with them, um, and I and I guess this probably is a part of a, of a meta value of humility because it's very easy as a parent <laughs> to want to love on your child and give them everything that they want or um, you know think that they need. Big difference, <laughs> and um, and just try and keep them happy in that way. But if you don't, from an early um, from, from the early days, instill in them a sense of humility, then it's going, it, like that behavior um, manifests itself. So I, you know, I would love to see my children have the humility to understand that they are very fortunate, very fortunate people, like just being born into a household with running water and a roof over your head and food on the table puts you in the top like five to 10% of the world, probably even less. Um, uh, so yeah. Humble, humility, and um, empathy would be my behaviors. Even though humble cool. and humility are the same word. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. That's great. Um, <laughs> I sort of read behaviors and then thought immediately values. So go me. Didn't even think about it. Um, so I think sort of from a base level, um, I kind of broke it into hard skills and soft skills. I'm going to talk about these first. I think hard skills, there's like problem solving and communication. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that there's many more, but these are two that sort of came to mind first. Um, I think that you need to problem solve, i.e. make decisions and communicate in all, you know, almost all facets of life. <laughs> um, and that you can help people learn this, whether it's through Lego or through reading a book or through figuring out, you know, what they're going to eat for lunch, you know, um, and what, what we should do today, you know, whatever else it is. Um, and so I think there's that side um, and that's, if you can do this well, then you can hopefully have what Jeremy, I think, has is really good raw common sensibility. Um, and this can be fostered whether it's at school or whether it's outside of school, uh, you know, in many ways. And the other one would be emotional intelligence. We talked a little bit about, you know, the model I like the most is self-awareness, self-regulation, social skill, empathy, and motivation. Um, I think these are all things that can be fostered. I mean, the, the sort of studies show this um, with, you know, the ability, you know, empathy is not something you're born with. It's something that you can foster or you can cultivate. Mm. Um, so, those are the sort of core skills that I think I'd like to impart upon, mm. you know, to somebody. Mm. Well, um, if, if it's not going to be your own children, Duncan, uh, would you think about creating a curriculum for these kind of things for people to learn? Uh, perhaps that is what is in the plans for Ed Roller. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think we can do a better job of this than the existing mm. outcome. Now, no guarantees, but I think it's definitely worth trying. And that's part of what we're wanting to do. Yeah. Um, I think above that, the next sort of things I was interested in is I think sort of two core questions that philosophers have been asking for millennia. What does it mean to live a good life and what is the common good? Uh, and one of the, the definitions I like of a good life is that you make your own value set and you live by them. Mm. And we sort of talked about this. You know, I think 99% of people believe they've made their own value set, but they actually haven't necessarily they've taken the value set that society gives them. We talked about things like having children as an example. But one that I sort of like on a different level is like drinking alcohol. Um, you know, in the Middle East, alcohol is legal. So 
going and, you know, drinking, they think, oh, these Westerners, what, what are they doing getting, you know, drunk every weekend? And so I sort of little um, parallel here. I think if someone said to you, let's go and have six cans of Coca-Cola on Friday, you'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What are you talking about? Yep. <laughs> but if someone said, let's go and have six beers this Friday, and there's as much sugar as in beer as there is in Coca-Cola, you'd be like, that's a great idea. Let's do that every week. <laughs> and so this is basically like, you, you think, oh, yeah, I've made a decision. You know, drinking alcohol is completely fine. Um, you know, there was a period where it was prohibition in the US and it wasn't fine. <laughs> um, you know, we didn't, you know, whatever, you know. So basically, you think you've made all your values, um, but I don't think you necessarily have. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you may have made almost none of them. Yeah. And so anyways, I think I would also not just like to help people with the problem solving and communication and emotional intelligence, but also help them to define what it means to live a good life for themselves, not to tell them what my definition is. And part of this is to create your own value set. And this is what we're sort of talking about here today. Mm. Yeah, uh, um, it's very true, um, given your Coca-Cola set beer example. <laughs> is <laughs> How much of this is just social appropriation? How much of your conditioning is based in the culture that you were raised in? Um, like it's 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 just it's a very very humbling experience to think about any kind of uh, belief system or value that you have and how quickly it can be um, dispelled as a universal notion. Um, so to, to that to that being like if you hold something to be um, objectively true, um, chances are there's somewhere in the world that would disagree with you, um, and so you would go back to. Um, you know, the source of that for them um, and how it's a very, very different experience. You know, drinking alcohol across countries, um, you know, how we value um, family. Uh, again, like last week, we talked about um, marriage being based on a foundation of love versus a foundation of um, bringing two families together, which is still how it's done in a lot of um, Eastern countries to this day. Um, so how much of your values are truly your own versus how much of your values, um, you know, are just there in the, um, the culture that you were raised in, I think is a very, very, um, you know, powerful notion for, for anybody to explore. Completely. And I think, you know, honestly, going through this exercise, it's made me realize that I don't think I had as anywhere near as much of a grasp on what I thought my values were than I thought I did. Ha ha, you know, <laughs> the insight is that I thought I knew who I was and that I don't actually know. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you come up with sort of the sort of standard things like treat others as you would like to be treated, work hard, you know, mm-hmm. be a good person. And, and I'm like, wow, that's some really <laughs> specific stuff there. You've really got some deep thinking on this, haven't you? Um, and then, you know, what would you like to impart to children? And now I don't necessarily have children, but, you know, we have, I don't know, a company at Enrollo and we have a bunch of values where they've written down and thought about. And, and I would say these are far more than that. And so it is like, I don't know, one of them is just no fussness. Yeah. Um, some humans are high fuss humans and some humans are low fuss humans. And as said, on my worst day, I'm pretty high fuss, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but on my best days, I'm hopefully like, you know, all right, you know, it's acceptable. Um, and, and so I never thought about trying to be as no fuss as possible. Another one is like be an energizing human. Sometimes you catch up with people and, and they give you energy, you leave. Sometimes you catch up and they're drained. You can, you can have an interesting conversation with someone. And I think James, is, this is one of the things that James and I have learned. Like I thought we always talked about interesting stuff, um, but we sometimes were having more of an argument than a discussion. It was more destructive than constructive. And I think by listening to ourselves on this podcast, we've actually 
been able to understand more about the tone. And I think it's improved the quality of the actual way we interact. Mm. We're talking about similar topics, but we're interacting in a far more energizing fashion, or at least for me. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely, 100%. Uh, it's just so uh, interesting reflecting on this notion of um, having values and your awareness of them. Like, I just go back to a moment of insight or um, an epiphany I had when I think I shared this with you, Duncan, quite a few years ago on my philosophy of um, partnerships and that it was to find yourself a good uh, partner. It, it doesn't matter if you have someone with similar interests. It's just you, um, but what you should have is someone with similar values. And I think both you and I are like, hmm, mm, yes, yes, very. That's some deep stuff. Yeah, and then, like, and then we're like, what, so, are so what are the values? Nobody uh, knows. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has good values. Oh god. Uh, yeah, it's um, like maybe we chalked it up to this being this big woo-woo intangible notion that you just inherently yeah. understand. But I still think um, you know you're right. If we think about them, if you reflect on them, we can kind of break them down to you know, what your fundamental or your first principles are in um, the way in which you see the world and how you want to live in it. All right, we're approaching the hour mark, which is normally wrap it up time. So I'll begin with a summary. Um, this book is bloody good. Buy the Insight book. <laughs> there is an attachment to it with PDF. And this is part one, um, which is sort of trying to get at your values. Then talk to somebody else about them and maybe start to realize that, of course, I know what my values are. Of course, I'm a value, you know, a person, value-driven person. And then you kind of uh, articulate them, you know, and perhaps you don't know. And so <laughs> I've personally found, they say that one of the top three things that delivers happiness is personal growth. And I've found talking about this and thinking about this with James to enlighten things about myself, which I perhaps didn't know. Uh, you know, I might have thought I was more self-aware than what I was. Mm. So my summary is, yeah. Learning about yourself is great. This book is a good way to look at this. I don't know nearly as much about my values as I thought I did and that I basically took a lot of them from society as opposed to making them myself. Yeah. Uh, this idea of self-awareness is um, an incredibly powerful notion. Uh, if you don't have time to read the book, uh, she has also given a TED Talk. So maybe we can put that link in the, uh, in the notes uh, below as well yeah. uh, because it's a great talk as well. Um, having... Your level of self-awareness um, starts with you, but it doesn't end there. You may think that you know who you are um, and that you have a very healthy relationship, but, but when you start to actually pull apart what the values that you hold, uh, you can start to see where they have been culturally appropriated. You can start to see ones that were given to you maybe by your parents. And then you can start to see the ones that you've started to form on your own. And that's the, the beginning of your journey into self-discovery is when you can be honest and open about where the values that you hold have come from. Uh, and the next thing, which is what Duncan touched on, is that it's also very uh, valuable to share this with other people, to talk to them about what not, uh, not only what you think your values are, but how, they, how you come across to others, um, whether it be in your workplace, your family, your friends. Uh, and you can learn a lot about yourself from them as well. Get you know, get some feedback and see if what you think of yourself holds up to how others perceive you. So yeah, um, really, really, um, you know, good meaty topic, Duncan. So um, <laughs> <laughs> cool. What are we talk about next time, James? All right. So next time we're talking about why facts 
don't change our minds. I disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> See you, everyone. Bye. Bye, Duncan.